Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. Welcome back to Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. Today's episode features Dave Pacman, host of the David Pacman Show. Uh, Dave is a great podcaster. I've listened to his podcast uh, for a good number of years. And I've always found him to be intelligent and thoughtful and somebody who's really good at digging into the meat of issues, policy and otherwise. This conversation really focused in squarely on the subject of polarization. You know, what pits us apart as a people, what divides us. Obviously, that's a major focus of mine. To me, that's the biggest thing that we have to be concerned about in, in American life. If we can't fix the relationships between the American people, nothing else gets fixed. Now, Dave and I have a somewhat different angle of approach on this general topic. You'll hear me tend to focus on cultural issues, psychological issues. Dave looks right at the material dimension of things. He draws a close link between uh, economic inequality, uh, material hardship, and the grievances and frustrations that people have at the system writ large, which makes it difficult for them to engage and collaborate with each other across some of our differences. I think Dave sees a lot of the cultural issues as merely exploiting those economic frustrations. But ultimately, though he and I are pulling threads from different ends, we do tend to converge pretty deeply in our ultimate understanding of things. And I think, looking back on it, that this might actually be one of the best conversations I've ever had in terms of surveying the larger landscape of what divides us as Americans. Last thing I'll say about it is that at the end of the conversation, I do allude to uh, some controversy Dave Pacman had recently on Twitter related to some remarks that he tweeted out in the aftermath of the Covenant shooting. Uh, those remarks that he tweeted out originally uh, were not remarks that I liked, to be honest. Yeah, it's the type of commentary that I don't particularly find much value in and tend to be critical of. But I'm also somebody who believes in judging a person by much more than a single tweet. And so at the end of the conversation, I do mount a defense of the man himself. And uh, folks can quibble or not with what I said, but I stand by those. Um, I stand by those remarks. And so now I bring you David Packer. Dave Pacman. Welcome, brother. Welcome to Uniting America. How you doing, man? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, this is exciting. This is exciting. As I was telling you before we uh, jumped on, you know, long before, you know, long before I was in sort of the, the podcasting game as the, as the exceedingly marginal <laughs> player that I am, I'm somebody who has uh, appreciated and enjoyed your thoughtful takes on a wide range of issues. Um, you're somebody who... I feel has kind of uh, conscientiously walked the balance between being an entertaining content creator on the one hand, but somebody who has, uh, in my estimation, uh, you know, some real intellectual integrity and wanting to treat both the issues and the people involved with them with some degree of fairness. And I, I think that those those things are actually quite in tension with each other, you know. Um, it's easy to go in the direction of wanting to be very sort of intellectually, you know, thorough and informative and, and be sort of boring and irrelevant or just being performative and provocateur and, you know, getting a lot of clicks, but making things worse. And so, you know, I, I see Dave Pacman as kind of, you know, striking the balance reasonably well. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it, that's the goal. You know, I this it's sort of like a conversation that happens in the art space often where, you know, art critics will say, 
this may be popular, but it's not really serious enough. Mm. And, um, you know, that's a fine criticism for a certain venue. I think my goal is I want to have the biggest impact possible. Mm. And so I think in order to do that, you have to kind of calculate where you're comfortable adhering to the norms of the platforms that mm -hmm. you're choosing to engage on, right. but also not compromising on, you know, I'm not doing tabloid celebrity stuff. That mm -hmm. would probably get more traffic than what I do. Like mm -hmm. news and politics has a lower ceiling than some of these other verticals for sure. Mm -hmm. But also if I had gone the direction of doing, you know, academic political science research, which at one point was a possibility, I might be doing something that a group of people would say is more serious, but nobody would see it. Hmm. And I actually think my impact would be dramatically reduced even by doing the thing that some might say is more serious. So, yeah, I mean, I think you you have to be entertaining to some degree, but I'm using that to build an audience that hopefully will then want to hear from me about uh, ranked choice voting or whatever the, the more important serious thing is going to be than the wacky things Trump said over the weekend. And it's kind of a constant balancing act to find exactly where I'm comfortable being. Got it. So I, I should not ask you for your hot take on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle or uh, did I, I, I really have very little to say about it. Yeah, I don't know. I okay. mean, did something happen? I don't even know. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's all right. We're more or less in the same in the same boat on that. Um, but, you know, I, I appreciate uh, what you just articulated. And actually, it's um, it's it's a subject that's of great practical concern. Um for me, um, so, you know, I, I actually don't really know, you know, how, uh, I, obviously, you know, I, I followed you uh, uh, for, for a bit and you're at least aware of me. I don't know how much you do or don't know about sort of my areas of focus, but in the work that I do with Braver Angels, which of course is America's largest grassroots bipartisan organization sort of squarely focused on political depolarization and a lot of the sort of cultural and social issues that fold into that. Um, you know, there's this desire uh, and uh, to ultimately advance a larger culture of goodwill in American politics that not only makes it easier for us to talk about politics across the kitchen table, but that might be able to link a shift in consciousness in that way to a more functioning systemic sort of order in terms of how we how we govern. And there's a degree to which that um, that goal is one that, I mean, if you poll people on it, do you want to see American society be less divided and so forth? Uh, very high approval for that sentiment from, you know, right to right, left and center. On the other hand, it's a message that kind of for a lot of folks feels like eat your vegetables. You know, um, we sort of morally and sentimentally approve of the idea that we need to build stronger relationships with each other for the for the good of society. Uh, and, and, and yet, on the other hand, um, generically speaking, it's not something that galvanizes. So I have I have two questions for you. Um, one, um, where are you on that project itself that I just articulated? Uh, you know, I was just giving it to you in sort of generic terms. That's that's question number one. Is it important to try and depolarize American society? Um, and two. Um, what would your assessment of the challenges there be? Well, I, I do think, generically speaking, depolarization mm -hmm. is a fantastic goal. I think mm -hmm. 
where I struggle on the practicality in some areas is there are some who see the path to depolarization as just sort of finding an in-between point between mm-hmm. what, say, Democrats and Republicans or liberals and conservatives are offering. And unfortunately, and I believe that this case can be made empirically, because the right has become so extreme at Mm. the center of the Republican Party. Yes, wokeness left. Okay. But these are these are fringes on the left that have essentially no place, like in the Biden administration, for example, you know, these things are so marginal. On the right, you look at Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ron Johnson, etc. You could go through the names. Mm. It's become so radical on the right that simply finding some center between these points on the spectrum isn't the way that we're going to realistically depolarize. You know, if if on the one hand, you've got a group that says uh, abortion should be illegal. I didn't just go silent. That's the whole point, right? That's the the position. (laughs) It should just be illegal. On the other side, you, you have, well, you know, obviously, we're not going around promoting abortion, but really it's not a political issue for people in Washington to be deciding. Uh, families with doctors should decide. What's the middle point? Make it sort of illegal? Like, So I think the concern I have is, as a generic goal, mm-hmm. it's undeniable that the status quo of polarization is not serving the country well, 100%. Mm-hmm. Saying the solution is finding a midpoint on the political spectrum with what I see as radical extremists on the right also isn't a solution. So the question is, how do we achieve it? And what does that look like as far as policy? Mm -hmm. Right. So let me let me offer a couple of lenses on the on the problem uh, and get your take, because on the one hand, there is polarization as a matter of the existence of seemingly irreconcilable sort of policy points of view. And, and I, I rather agree that at some points, you know, looking for the looking for the hair splitting compromise that allows everything to sort of balance out becomes, you know, tough, if not a bit of a fool's errand. On the other hand, there's the understanding of polarization, affective polarization, right? The distinction being that this is something that you know, is likely going to be related to, but ultimately quite distinct from the distance that exists between us on issues. You and I conceivably, um, uh, theoretically here could be, I mean, you could be somebody who, you know, uh, uh, believes in, uh, you know, well, we, we want universal healthcare and, and I'm, you know, willing to employ a mix between sort of a, you know, a private, private sector solutions and a public option to, to get there and Medicaid, this, that, or the other. And I could just hate your guts for not being for Medicare for all, <laughs> you know, it could be, you know, it's sort of vanity of small differences. Now, of course, the differences between us are very significant, but my point is simply that the problem of polarization, uh, as I see it primarily is one of actual personal and intertribal contempt. And, and my feeling is that that bleeds into the sort of structural and institutional operations of society that make it impossible either to arrive at the optimal sorts of compromises on issues that might otherwise be possible or to even live with an outcome that is different from what you desired politically, because any loss to the other side is less a part of the give and takes of ordinary po- politics and more an actual lost to something of a demonic force in our society that has to ultimately be vanquished. And so 
do you is, do you recognize that that distinction and uh, do, do you see there as being a relationship between sort of personal and tribal contempt and the way things operate? I do absolutely, yeah. And yeah. what there's this kind of para, paradoxical status quo that has developed in this hyperpartisan environment where on the one hand, there is this contempt is a good word. There is this kind of intractable interpersonal, um, drama that persists. You know, we hear about the Thanksgiving table stories of yeah. I just couldn't even make it through the meal because mm. we disagreed on what the top tax rate would be. You know, that's like an exaggeration <laughs> yeah. usually. Well, is. actually, it's, it's not. There's data on that. At least going back well, to the no, 2016 well, like, election. It's an exaggeration yeah. that maybe the top tax rate would be All the right, catalyst. Sure, I think sure, it's right. more, you know, social issues or whatever. Right. But there's another yeah. part, I think, that uh, breeds the status or prevents us from getting past things. And I spoke about this recently when I was with Lex Friedman, mm -hmm. which is I'm really comfortable disagreeing with someone and then being around them and having them on my dodgeball team yeah. or whatever, assuming that I don't find their beliefs to be hateful in a very particular way where I'm just so repulsed. I don't want to be near. So, so, you know, if I'm on a volleyball team, and there's a gay person on the team, and then there's an overt homophobe on the team. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. tougher. Okay. That, but mm. the point is, even someone who thinks Trump won in 2020, which I believe is just factually uh, untrue, and we could have a conversation about that and we disagree. I'm comfortable with the fact that we disagree on that, but we might still be able to agree, agree on what restaurant to go to mm -hmm. or agree on 90% of how parenting should be done or whatever the case may be. Right. And living with that discomfort, I think, is an important aspect of being in a diverse country and understanding how to exist in society. And that has been lost to some degree, where sometimes people will say, you know, I sort of watch what you do, but... I, I, you know, they'll kind of visibly cringe or grimace and say, but I just don't agree with X. And for me, it's like, right. oh, okay, that, that's okay. You know, mm -hmm. we might agree on a lot of other things or not, but we're still reasonable people. Reason so I think that there's a lack of comfort with living with differences of opinion. That is a problem. Well, we feel, of course, very similarly there. Now, Ezra Klein, his starting point for sort of analyzing the intractable nature of polarization in American society focuses in on this understanding of partisan identity as being something that collapses multiple other identities within it, right? And so, you know, it used to be the case that, you know, you could be a liberal Republican and a conservative, you know, Democrat, and that that wouldn't necessarily uh, tell you anything very certain uh, about your, you know, your religion, your ethnicity, your sexual orient sexual orientation, perhaps, and, you know, other things, because the clubs back in those, I mean, the, the parties back in those days were sort of like clubs that were seeking to appeal to the broader range of Americans. And so the Republican Party actually had a bit of a vested interest in sort of having some appeal to people who are philosophically more liberal and same thing with Democrats in the in the other direction. But what happened over time is that you have a situation where as the parties realign, suddenly to be a Republican is to be, you know, in many cases, uh, an evangelical, somebody who is strident on on gun rights, somebody who is, you know, strident on, on free market economics, whatever the case may be. And to be a Democrat is to be somebody who's, you know, more 
motivated by by civil rights, somebody who's you know not perhaps not as traditional, who's far more labor friendly, this that or the other. Um, but these identities, this personal identity of like I'm a person of color, I'm you know I'm somebody who you know sees religion in a certain way, and that's tied directly to my politics, makes it so that party labels reinforce tribal identities now in ways they never did before. So my question to you is. You know, one, does that analysis ring true? And two, do you feel that do you feel that it is necessary for us to come to a point to where we can personally sort of relate to each other on the level of some shared identity as Americans? If we're going to be able to hold the larger social fabric together, putting aside whether or not that's that is, in fact, possible. Is it nevertheless necessary to confront this problem? I, I think the analysis is generally true. I think that if you read sociology and ethnography and these sorts of things, it does seem that some touch point of a shared identity is very important in order to get large groups of people to work together towards mutual goals. And so like at a very broad you know, anthropological level almost, I do think that that's true. I think in, in a way, it's not wrong to say that sometimes that's easier in less diverse countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there are times where people on the right love to say, you know, all you progressives talking about Sweden, Sweden has a huge lack of diversity. And that's what allows the consensus and the progress and the, okay, on, I, I don't accept that argument in some total, mm-hmm. but I think there's an aspect of it. And of course, if you zoom out from all of these identities that make up the melting pot of the United States, maybe that shared touch point is Americanism, for mm-hmm. lack of a better mm-hmm. term. I also think that you could zoom out further, and it would be great if merely, you know, human identity, shared human identity had value and and importance there. In terms of the labels, I do think it's interesting because it kind of gets into a conversation of identity politics Mm -hmm. in the abstract and in the specific. I've told stories on my show about how as a Jewish person, depending on who you talk to, I'm either not white and actually an (laughs) enemy of white people with different goals, interests, and priorities, or I'm just a privileged white person (laughs) whose membership in a group of incredible thousands of years of oppression actually gets erased. Mm. So yeah, I, am I an American white boy or am I a Hispanic (laughs) immigrant from Argentina, which I am, right? English is my second language. I moved here Mm -hmm. from Argentina. So the the interesting thing also is that very much the identity discussion, as real as it is, it's so easy to make the wrong assessment on it. And sometimes some of the big revelations come in those moments where you're doing the identity thing and you miscalculate the identity of an individual. And it can be this shakeup where it makes you question, (laughs) is that actually as important as I thought it was? Or maybe it's like humans, we share human identity or we're Americans to some degree. Those moments can be really interesting and and change perspective on that issue. Yeah, well, let's let's keep pulling at this thread because I think it's really interesting, really important. And uh, it's it's, it's cool to have you here to be able to sort of probe the depths of your thinking in these directions because, you know, you're, you're so great at focusing on policy and so many other so many other things but i don't always get to hear you go deep on these points do you follow uh 
sort of the national conservatism conversation. Are you at all familiar with like Yoram Hazoni and, you know, some of the folks on the right who are sort of um, leaning into the idea that ultimately, you know, we should perhaps be embracing kind of Judeo-Christian identity as as a nation more explicitly and even using sort of the, you know, the, the structure of law and government in some sense to actually reinforce that, right? So it's a bit of a departure from the, hey, you know, we're a, we're a, we're a Christian, you know, Judeo-Christian nation, you know, culturally, but, you know, religious freedom is sacro, sacrosanct and, you know, we can take a more libertarian view of it. Some folks on the right are actually beginning to, and I'm going to have Yoram on this podcast, and so I don't, don't want to get, get ahead of myself here, but it seems like some folks on the right are beginning to say, you know what, like liberal pluralism doesn't really work, you know, and maybe we accommodate people of other views, but to the extent to which we can really reinforce Christian identity, even in the identity of the state, uh, even if on a state by state level, we should do that. Is that a conversation you track at all? Very much so. I mean, I, I call it Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, and uh, and of course, you know, you you mentioned you know uh, wokeism and so forth. Um, I, well, let me just give you this this layout. On the one hand, you have that strain of thinking on the right, right, um, which says that the liberal project doesn't work, um, and we need to sort of reinforce these identities in order to hold a certain cultural and moral standard that can allow the West to survive, much less just, you know, the West in general, not just the United States even. And then on the other hand, on on the left, you know, I, I sort of detect a way of looking at the world and society, which says that, you know, um, that this is a white supremacist state, one in which these sort of inherited traditions of the liberal order are really sort of masks for white supremacy, right? And that it is important for us to, you know, let's say, in, you know, in, in even Max Kendi's view to sort of, you know, perhaps somewhat radically alter the powers of the Constitution in order to ensure equity, that we should engage in something of a restructuring of our understanding of what allows people to have standing in conversation on the basis of their privilege or lack thereof. But that to me represents a cynicism towards or lack of confidence in the liberal project also that the liberal project has failed from that perspective. and needs to be challenged. Um, the uncomfortable point I'm getting at here is that there are strong strains, I think on right and left that actually sort of believe that the idea of a liberal sort of America in perpetuity is one that is perhaps impossible. And it's weird because, you know, Francis Fukuyama uh, uh, told us that liberalism had won, you know, after the fall of the Cold War. And, and I think liberalism sort of did, in a sense, you know, it was dominant. What do you make of liberalism per se in that, in that classical sense? Because I heard you say that the idea of shared Americanism or even shared human identity is where you would like to believe we could find common ground. But I think in some sense, from Kindy to Hazoni, view on that and, and perhaps my view on that too, would seem like a naive notion. And so are you a defender of sort of the liberal ethos in a traditional sense? And if so, how do you defend it from those two points of view? In my conception of this, mm. and this could be this could be wrong or naive in and of itself. Mm. I see the first question as w- that you mentioned in terms of the right saying this this liberal multicultural idea has sort of failed 
and some on the left saying it has also failed because despite the window dressings, mm. it has left these structural problems that we're now left to deal with. Mm. I see that as one question. Mm. And then when you ask me about liberalism, I go more to the economic system mm. of a relatively poorly regulated version of capitalism. Mm. Although there are huge overlaps, I think these are two things with a big overlap and okay. they have maybe different edges. Yeah, tease it out, please. I think if we first, and I, and, I, and I think that the former comes from the latter in the sense of looking at the economic system and the things that have gone well and that haven't gone well. Now, like full disclosure, I'm a progressive social democrat, mm -hmm. which is a form of capitalism that in Europe is very much recognized as mainstream. Mm -hmm. And in the United States is some kind of, sometimes called Marxist. Okay. So <laughs> right. in my view, it's, it's quite mainstream. And so right. I think that the failings of liberalism, which include um, vestiges of discrimination that persist today in statistically measurable realities, inequality um, in the United States, lack of access to healthcare, an educational system that has failed so many, hunger that still exists, even though it has no reason to, all of these things, mm. I point to the economic system as the cause of that. And I also recognize that compared to lots of other economic systems that have been tried in history, we've iterated to this point with many great benefits. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. doing the Steven Pinker thing where I go, listen, you're less likely than ever to die of contagious disease. You're less mm -hmm. likely than ever to die in a war. Like I recognize that those things are true, mm -hmm. but I think they sometimes are glibly used to say we can look away from being concerned with some of these things as mm -hmm. if we've fixed them or figured them out. So uh, mm -hmm. to, to kind of get back to the central point, I think that many of the things that have gone well in terms of the advance of human civilization, the frontiers that we are regularly piercing in so many different areas and technology, all these different things, many of them are a result of the system that we have, and it brings with it significant problems that we need to deal with as well. The best analogy to this is actually Neil Postman's view on technology. Neil Postman was a sort of futurist technologist who wrote a lot of interesting things in the 80s and 90s. And one of the things he would often talk about is there's some new technology that comes forward, radio, television, email, internet, whatever. And very quickly, the conversations become, should we allow or ban this thing? Because here's a list of bad things that could or are already happening. Right. And his view, as far as technology was, it's it's really the wrong conversation because there seems to be this, unless you, you are going to go the dictatorship way, these things will be part of society mm. and we're better off harnessing the best and regulating or trying to prepare ourselves for the worst of it. Mm. So I, you take all of that and you analogize it to the sort of liberal Western capitalist economy democracy. My view of social democracy is a version of that, which is let's do our best to harness all of the good things that have come from this. Right. Let's not ignore the negatives and let's use the good to try to deal with the bad. And often we would look at policies like taxation and, and, and sort of other things. 
and that is that's my perspective. So hmm. to say has it failed or succeeded is a really tough thing to answer in the abstract for me like that. Yeah, wow. Okay. So that's that's a really useful analysis for me that also introduces another tension <laughs> from my vantage point. Um let me make sure first of all that I'm understanding you. Um uh, am I correct in hearing you say that what we have with liberalism is a context in is a circumstance in which you know yes you have sort of this cultural layer of values in which you know we would like to imagine we could sort of join in greater civic trust and social goodwill on the basis of shared american identity and humanism but to the extent to which we are or are not able to do that it is connected to the partial but far from satisfactory material progress uh of sort of that that larger liberal capitalist kind of kind of framework is that am i hearing you correctly you are and therefore inferring from that that if we were to have made more satisfactory gains materially economically um perhaps with respect to income inequality and so forth the hazonis and the kindy and and i'm I'm just lumping them together as you know roughly you know uh exemplifying their polls here but um but that the Hazonis and the Kindies of the world, perhaps, or these two poles would have less, uh, less to, you know, th- th- there'd be less Kindle for them to burn in terms of, you know, the, the power of their the power of their arguments. Um, however, okay, so I, I, I think I hear you there, um, and I, I agree because it seems to me that you know, if you look at the MAGA movement, you know, you look at you look at BLM, you look at sort of there are diverse constituencies on both sides, but I would argue that the base constituency in each direction, you're talking about, you know, uh, poor white folks in Appalachia and the South and people who have felt sort of materially and socially disenfranchised. And you're talking about a lot of people of color, certainly African-Americans and in urban inner city communities who, of course, have felt materially and socially dis- disenfranchised. The grievances of these groups have been marshaled into our popular movements. And so I think the connection that you're making is very clear. However, I think that there's another analysis that runs right alongside that, which I'd like to get your response to, which says that really this is sort of a social and spiritual question as well, lowercase s spiritual, if you will. But that, you know, on the one hand, you've got folks, uh, you know, uh, on the right who feel that there's a hollowness, even for people who have made it in the liberal order, to the success, uh, to even the success of liberal society and liberal capitalism, right? That on the one hand, we have consumer goods and so forth. We have, for most folks, uh, you know, an iteratively higher quality of life, standard of living, uh, but social capital is diminishing. Our sense of purpose and the decline of religion is diminishing. Our sense that we have a place in the world that satisfies our need for a greater identity, um, a greater sense of self, connection to history, that all these things are diminishing. And on the left, even for folks who have you know, made it, so to speak, there perhaps is a deeper desire for, 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 for justice, a deeper desire for sort of the balancing of the scales in society. And even within that, an embrace of identity politics that comes with the sense that, hey, I don't necessarily want to bleed into a generic 
Americanism. I don't want to sacrifice my identity as a black man, you know, as uh, as 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 somebody who, uh, or as uh, or as a Muslim or as a Jew, somebody for whom that is important. The kind of equalizing of all identities in the liberal project is something that does not appeal to a lot of po- folks for whom their tribe is the basis of their identity and their politics. And so, I guess my question to you here is. Granted, the validity of of your analysis, which I totally recognize, is it perhaps incomplete without this other piece? Is there a component of people needing more than just material progress in order to feel like they really genuinely have an investment in America? 100%. And I think, to, to be totally honest, I don't think any single analysis is complete when you recognize the complexity of and the scale and scope of a country like the United States, yeah. or you can make this argument for any country or human society. I mean, I, I think with any of these analyses, my approach is I'm trying to, it's like Zeno's paradox where I'm trying to go halfway <laughs> to the goal yeah. and then we're going to try to get another halfway. And I don't yeah, know that yeah, we'll yeah. ever really actually get there. Sure. I think all of these analyses are lacking, but they're sort of tools. Honestly, they're tools to think about, to say what's missing from it and let's find something to add. And I think <clears> what you're adding is absolutely legitimate. I also think not everything you mentioned in terms of what is lamented, I would agree is objectively bad. Like for example, the decline of religion in America, it's not that I'm cheering and saying that's great. I, I'm, I'm not against religion. I'm against religion being a part of the uh, standard that's used to, to figure out civil law. That mm-hmm. I'm against in the separation of want, wanting a pretty clear line between church and state. Sure. But it was sort of predictable that as science answered more questions, religiosity might decline. And so just to pick one of the things you mentioned, I don't know that that is part of what I would say is missing or to be lamented about the social side of this, but it's an opinion question, right? Mm -hmm. Different people might come to a different conclusion on that, but I agree 100%. And I think someone who's a class reductionist might hear this and say, well, but all of the things you're mentioning now flow downhill from the the crux of the economic system. Mm. I'm not a class reductionist, so mm. it's not my instinct, but I know right. that that would be one reaction to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I guess to I guess to respond to to that, um, I do think that you know part of there's always a temptation to sort of look at history as flowing along the lines of linear equations and of course it doesn't really work that way i mean you have concurrent and reinforcing sort of factors taking place at at all times you know i i think that where there is sort of adequate material resources it is perhaps easier and i think it's fairly demonstrable that you know if people reach a certain level of income that's able to add to a certain level of personal and potentially social stability and from there you know you can build upwards on maslow's hierarchy of needs to you know stronger you know community safety nets and you know sense of identity and purpose etc on the other hand if you already have those things i think you're probably more resilient in the face of the the onset of material deprivation you know and so the lack of those things to begin with i think can probably make it to where societal structures devolve to where you know chaos anarchy and poverty are perhaps you know more likely to you know persist if not sort of widen and so 
Yeah, I don't I don't really think we have to choose between these things and these sort of order of operations necessarily, although maybe there's some general statement to be made. Maybe it's contextual. Let me ask you just a brief side question then. I want to isolate what might potentially be the vanity. Um, I say that with love, really, um, of sort of the the liberal and heterodox kind of kind of cultural and culture and personality. Um, Because I think that, so I, I'm a bit of an odd duck in a sense, and and I may even be outing myself here in a way that might surprise some of my uh, friends in the heterodox community. Um, Because I, I, I have, uh, I'm somebody who comes from an explicitly multicultural sort of uh, cross ideological uh, world. Um, You know, my father's a conservative white Republican from Tennessee, came from great wealth. My mother's a liberal black Democrat from inner city Los Angeles. I grew up in a very multicultural sort of, you know, progressive community, but I also am somebody who uh, just a bit later in life became very deeply rooted in in the church. And, you know, I, I consider myself to, there's this heterodox space where you mentioned Steven Pinker, but there are a whole lot of folks we could we could load up in there. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm friends with, you know, great folks like, you know, like, like, like Coleman Hughes and, you know, uh, my pal, uh, Peter, Peter Bogosian and Angel Eduardo and folks at fair and all, all sorts of other, other people. And, um, I get along really well in that universe because there's a tolerance for different points of view, like the types of conversations you like to have, you can have there all day long. It's why I love the intellectual dark web. It's why I love Sam Harris. It's why that whole space in its glory day seemed to me to be an inspiring thing because, uh, tolerance and heterodoxy was sort of the norm. And yet I consider myself to be both to the left and the right of that space simultaneously in some sense, because I, while I agree with you that I don't want to see religion setting the standard for law in government exactly, I do have a cultural sort of lament for the decline of the church, because I do think that there's a social fabric and a spiritual undergirding that comes with that and that kind of you know, I'm sort of a classical conservative in the Burkean sense. On the other hand, I have a lot of sympathy for identity politics because I believe in the black freedom tradition. I live in a black community. I um, I come from a multicultural family, but most of my relatives are African-American. And I think that there's something a bit lost when you lose sight of the lineage that runs from Frederick Douglass to Booker T. Washington to Dr. King, but also to Malcolm X and the Black Panthers and and all of, all of that. Um, I could say more about all that. Um, but I think the thing I'm arguing here is simply that, that, you know, on the one hand, America is a melting pot, and there's an intellectual tradition here that says that all these different views can come into conversation with each other. Um, and, and I fundamentally believe in, in the central goodness of that. But I also sort of think it's one culture among many. In other words, I don't necessarily see that liberal universalism, so to speak, as being qualitatively sort of, you know, sort of the thing that ought to define the center of American identity for everybody. And I, I think that there's a sense that it it is that uh, among many people or should be that. And so I'm wondering if you have an analysis of the heterodox sort of culture uh, in, in, in general, and if you have a position on that point in 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 particular, hopefully, I made it clear enough for you to respond to. Uh, well, let's see. Let's see. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that 
For me, I would say that the driving force is less about this liberal universalism, uniculture sort of mm -hmm. thing as the as even as the likely nor desirable endpoint, but more one about we we actually want to preserve and celebrate that we don't all share the same cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And there's room for that in the United States to coexist with some basic shared understanding of how the country should be organized mm. that doesn't preclude anyone from maintaining right. the that culture. And so, you know, I, I maybe in our, this is the first time I'm kind of trying to actually articulate mm. it in, in a sentence, so to speak. <laughs> but I, I think one of the things about it would be you know, I have a number of identities that resonate with me. And yeah. one is immigrant. Another is Spanish speaker. So when I go to Florida and I go to the parts of Florida that are filled with Argentinians and I hear the Argentinian accent, mm. I immediately identify with that in a way that is never going to be even understandable to mm. my friends from Ohio who were just <laughs> born in Ohio. Right. So, right. Yeah. But yeah. part of it mm -hmm. is that it can coexist, but we all agree, okay, um, uh, non-discrimination under the law, the mm -hmm. right to self-determine the best path for you in terms of we don't have a state that tells you what is your career path going to be the way some political movements do. So I, I'm not super articulately explaining it, but I think that part, part of the idea for me of what a better end goal is than this liberal universalism uniculture sort of thing is the idea that we have all of these different cultures that we still identify as their own thing. We don't have to pretend that they're all the same or that they work together with no friction at all. There are differences, mm -hmm. but that there are some basics on which we can agree make that possible. And right. that's the universalism that we might come to in the United States. Yeah, I say bingo to that. Um, and yeah, so I, yeah, that's right. I, I, I think that it is a question of, do we see, uh, sort of this, um, this, this liberal, uh, center as being a sort of a, an, an, an end point or a bridge in some sense, right? If it's, if it's, the end point, if the idea is that we're going to sort of establish this enormous kind of, this enormous kind of secular culture, which on on the one hand sort of you know allows for religion to exist on the edges and allows for ethnic identity to be important at the edges, but really in terms of everything meaningful in our institutional and mainstream sort of culture, those things are more or less shunted to the side in favor of kind of this, um, you know, this this see-through kind of culture of of tolerance and intellectual enlightenment and material of progress i think that that maybe works for that works for some people but i don't think it works for america broadly speaking on the other hand if that is a piece that allows for the others to coexist with each other you know right left and center in an arrangement in a balance of of forces that allows for federalism to work allows for democracy to work um, then I think that, yeah, I think that that's, that's the answer on sort of a social structural level. Now I want to add another piece to it <laughs> because I think that nevertheless, where I come back to the need for a spiritual transcendence here 
is in recognizing, I think I recognize the fact that while I'm theoretically on board with that illustration, at the end of the day, um, it's not as necessary for everybody to love each other. It's not necessary for everybody to trust each other. But there's got to be enough social connection and goodwill across the spectrum for us, again, to not devolve to this point to where any political victory that that you win is a victory for the for the forces of evil. And what that, I think, requires is some capacity for us to really be able to see the humanity in one another across across the spectrum. And that to some degree has to proceed from some amount of personal relationship, personal connection. So here's where I come to. I think that the liberal, um, I'm using the phrase liberal center. I probably come up with a better way of saying this, but you know, this sort of liberal center as, as we're kind of describing it here. Um, it doesn't bring with it a transformational attitude in and of itself. Where I, where I go to to find that is I could go to a few places, but most relevantly and most immediately, I find I, I, I find uh, my source for that way of of thinking and getting beyond this hump in the philosophy of nonviolence as it was taught and practiced by Martin Luther King Jr. in particular. I think that what King managed to do in his own time was through the philosophy of nonviolence, and essentially, you know, I many people don't really understand Dr. King as sort of a philosopher and an intellectual. We remember him as an activist and somebody who believed in turning the other cheek, but he was a systematic philosopher, you know, and what nonviolence was to him was sort of, it was the use of love as a spiritual force that could affect social change. And what King was able to do was sort of articulate a moral basis for believing in the human dignity of your opponent, but also recognizing that in order to both defeat your opponent politically, but maintain a relationship with him to allow for society to survive socially, you had to appeal to that person's conscience and therefore you had to love that person. And, you know, love, not an affectionate way, but, you know, an overarching sense of goodwill. And that overarching sense of goodwill, that ethos of goodwill was something that King was able to use to simultaneously appeal to the conscience of the Christian and also the conscience of the humanist, right? Because you can find that in both, in both places. You can find that in both, both traditions. And King was both of those things simultaneously. He was a Christian humanist, basically, you know? Um, but it, but he, he had to sort of explicitly articulate this idea that we have to love our enemies, right? We have to see human good in them. That doesn't necessarily... And tell me if you disagree. I don't think that necessarily proceeds from the Enlightenment. You know, I, I think that you might find that people are, you know, that way and that in that tradition. But I don't think you necessarily just get that from, you know, Locke and, and Rousseau or and, and, and others. Um, I feel like on some level, we've got to have a way to have a conversation uh, on the level of higher sort of spiritual values that really centers love, really centers goodwill. You know, because we've got to make it possible for folks way on the identitarian left or right or however you want to say it, you got to make it possible for folks on the polls to actually love each other again. Now, 
if you're just tuning into the conversation at this point, <laughs> Dave Pacman, uh, the conversation you and I are having, you might just say like, okay, John is talking about love and so forth. And this is another generic feel good stuff. But when you load up everything we said, you know, leading up to this point, in the conversation, I, I, I hope folks can hear and realize that this is actually, you know, I'm attempting to make a very substantive point. That's not sort of, you know, divorced from the material analysis from the cultural analysis and how you reconcile the psychology of identity that exists on the poles. And so I'm hitting you with this idea. Um, love is the answer perhaps to the intractable identity and tribal issues that also reinforce and are reinforced by our material issues in society. Is it possible that you might, uh, that you might agree with me or that you might see some, some, some validity in that, or, or is that, is that still just, is it too pie in the sky a notion to be grounded in our politics? Well, I think the interesting thing would be, how do we make that tact more tactical? And I think mm -hmm. that there are a couple of tools. I'm, I don't think I'm switching gears, but I'm sort of saying like, okay, let's, let's imagine that it is pie in the sky, but how can we make it tactical in a yeah. way? Yeah. There are some conversational tools that I found useful for, for doing this, and I don't know that they're necessarily love per se, but mm -hmm. I think that they can try to bridge some of these intractable gaps in conversations. Like when you're talking about something extremely difficult where you know that there are disagreements that go beyond just the facts I know, but are about what I feel, what I believe, how I was brought up, could be religion, could be all of these different things. Um, the question, why do you think I have the position that I have on this issue? Right. Mm -hmm. As a as a way to actually bridge. OK, you're at least putting it out there that you understand that my intentions, you know, very rarely will the answer to that be something like, well, I think you believe what you believe about abortion because you're a, a baby killer. Right. Like, OK, <laughs> someone could say that, but rarely is that going to be it. So it actually can inspire some of that, maybe not love, but it's empathy or it's mutual understanding or it's going to a higher layer where we're going to try to identify, OK, well, we both came to our positions based on what we think we would want if it were our family member in a certain situation. We might think we would want totally different things, but it can create a little bit of that shared understanding. Hmm. Uh, so those types of tactics, I think, if they were employed in an open-minded way, might be a step in the direction of what I think I hear you're suggesting. Well, I, uh, I, um, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that response, because what you've described there, really, what you just described, Dave, is the Braver Angels Project, you know, uh, just sort of full stop. Certainly the context is very much different. You know, Dr. King was seeking a particular sort of policy, you know, uh, particular policy outcomes in the context of, of the civil rights movement, the nonviolent movement, and they developed nonviolent methodologies for, uh, for advocating uh, changes in policy and also moving culture. And so, you know, nonviolence was something that expressed itself in an, in an internal psychological discipline where you did not think ill of the people that you were challenging. And then that was leveraged into sit-ins at lunch counters, into nonviolent demonstrations, into, you know, literally being able to sit there and be spat at and shouted at and physically abused and return, uh, you know, uh, grace uh, for, for contempt in a while, in a way that allowed you to move the conscience of your opponent. Right. Um, our contact 
context is different, of course. We're looking to strengthen the bonds of civil society and strengthen the social fabric and to get people to be able to reason together again, have nuanced and logical conversations. But, uh, you know, Brave Angels, we have a suite of programs that we've deployed uh, in communities across the country, college campuses across America, uh, in the United States Congress and every level of government where we, we have a range of things, but they, they start in programs rooted in family therapy, in essence. Our very first workshop was something called a red-blue workshop, where we took, take small groups of folks from the right and from the left, or reds and blues, as we say in-house, not to argue or debate politics uh, uh, initially, but rather to speak from the vantage point of their own life or lived experience in terms of why they see politics the way that they do. So it's quite literally the application of marriage counseling uh, to the relationship between Republicans and Democrats. And the thing about marriage counseling is that you proceed from a starting point that says that, you know, at the end of the day, like, even if you guys are on the verge of divorce, you're together because you love each other or you love something about each other. Like you, you have some recognition of the human good in each side. And, and by, and, and, and what's needed in that context, oftentimes it's just an opportunity for us to speak our whole truths and to be heard and to be seen so that we can re-trigger that empathy, so that there's understanding, you know, across across the divide in the context of a marriage. And through that empathy and understanding, maybe we can reset the social dynamic. Maybe we can reset the relationship. Um, that's proceeding from love. That's proceeding from goodwill in just a dry functional kind of in psychological way, I would argue. And those are the types of methodologies that we're looking to sort of scale up in America. And so to take a sort of full circle here, <laughs> you know, part of the project for scaling that up in my mind is being able to popularize kind of narrative around that. And that's kind of my job uh, th in the context of our work at Brave Angels and Monica Guzman and others. But it's, it's a hard thing because, you know, trying to articulate something that is not quickly articulable, you know, without listening to this whole conversation with Dave Pacman and trying to make it something that doesn't sound like eat your vegetables and so forth. You know, and so uh, part of what, you know, we're trying to do is to show people how that that goodwill is grounded in, in method and how it's related to policy and progress on policy in a way that doesn't make it seem merely Pollyannish. Um, and so that's a project uh, that we're trying to sort of introduce to the American people. And so, yeah, I, I'd love to having explained it, sort of put that in, in, in front of you to see if you have any thoughts or advice for, for us, for our members and listeners who are hearing you uh, on this program now, um, do you think that this is something that could work in America? And feel free to hit me with a bucket of ice cold water if, if you don't think so. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, the, the, I think that these tactics are hugely affected when given the opportunity to be implemented. That's right. not the difficult thing because you, you've stumbled, up, stumbled upon, you've kind of outline tools that work. We know that these tools work when there is an environment in which they can be implemented. The right. difficult thing is getting getting the constituents to actually come to the table in these settings rather than in the Twitter setting or whatever mm. the case may be. But I think without a doubt, we have great tools for having these conversations. It's just that through some people who are interested, some people who aren't willing, some people who are busy working in order to feed their families. It's difficult to, at a mass scale, uh, seed 
enough of these conversations to where we might start quickly seeing a change in the kind of material substance nationally. That's the difficult part. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I will say that I think that uh, I think that people like yourself, Dave, do do make our work a bit easier because I think that anybody who really follows you um, will see that you're a person uh, who who does dignify the humanity in people with whom you disagree politically. And I know that part of that is attributable to your background in Argentina, your your upbringing in a country where political debate was one that was expected. Maybe people don't necessarily just get their feelings hurt right off the bat because somebody sees things very differently than they do. Now, I, I want to say this not just, you know, because I have you on the line and, you know, and, and because I'm, you know, I'm happy to be talking to somebody who's enjoyed your work in the past. But, but I also want to say this, even in the context of knowing that, you know, you got into some Twitter hot water, you know, recently, uh, I guess it was in the aftermath of the Covington uh, shooting and so forth. Um, and uh, w- without going into the details of that, I, I you know, I, I really just want to say that I said up top, like, you know, I have sympathy for you. Dave Rubin is somebody who I'd like to like to call a friend. And, you know, Dave and I have vastly different approaches to, you know, how we communicate and so forth. But, you know, from 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 right to left, I, I meet people who in different ways are trying to strike a balance. You know, we have to be able to get our message out in this competitive informational economy. We have to be able to get people's attention. Right. And the headlines and the news, they come so fast that, you know, we've all kind of shot off statements. Ben Shapiro wrote a whole essay, you know, a whole article going down all of the things he said in the past that he thought, you know, were, you know, in retrospect, you know, maybe, maybe he'd, he'd tweak them a, a little bit or didn't necessarily have the impact he wanted to have. And I'm not even suggesting that you do or don't, you know, regret those words. I, I, you feel free to comment on that if you like. My larger point is that we can't judge each other by single tweets. We can't judge each other even by single conversations, I think. And it's so easy for us to do that. It's so easy for us to see one thing or two things or three things that a person has done and not take into account their whole worldview, not and to not take into account their whole their whole body of interactions with other human beings that are inevitably going to tell you more, you know? And so, you know, I, I would just I would just, you know, ask people in the case of Dave Pacman and, and many other folks who we might have mentioned this conversation. Otherwise, you know, take a look at the whole at the whole person before you render uh, a sum total judgment or write somebody off. And that goes for public uh, commentators and also people in your own lives, you know? And so with that, brother, I thank you. And I give you the last word, whatever it may be. And uh, I, I really appreciate the conversation. I think it's an important one. I think uh, so many of the things we're talking about, really, the, the difficulty is the implementation. How do we get more people involved in these types of conversations? We have all of these great ideas and tools and conversation we should be having. The question is getting people to have them. And I think that that that's uh, such a critically important thing to be doing. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, let's keep having the conversation. Dave, I hope to have you back. I hope this isn't the last time we speak. Many happy returns. Until next time, folks, you are watching Uniting America. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and tune in for more content and learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org.